to season one of Bristlecone Firesides, casual conversation around a virtual fireside about faith, the earth, the universe, and everything. In this first season, we will be exploring foundational themes of a spiritual practice rooted in the earth. We are your hosts, Abby and Madison. Join us as we strive to re-enchant the natural world with an ecologically-based spirituality that is centered in sacred texts, rooted in the earth, and lived through activist issues facing us today. All right, George, welcome to the, the Bristlecone Firesides podcast today. Uh, thanks for coming on and talking with us. Um, now, there's a, some history between me, you, and Abby. Uh, so can you tell us, uh, how, first, how do you know me and Abby? And then secondly, tell, tell us a little bit about who you are. Or maybe even reverse that if that makes more contextual sense. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I know you two as uh, former and, uh, uh, you know, I guess con- continuing students uh, uh, in environmental humanities classes that I've taught and others at BYU have taught. I know you as two brilliant, wonderful souls. And uh, I'm... I'm uh, we're we're all close friends, so I think that's uh, that should be disclosed in case anybody's wondering. <laughs> um, but uh, and in fact, he, uh, uh, Abby is currently serving as my TA and uh, has been serving as my research assistant uh, uh, most recently. Um, and uh, I've been at BYU since 1998. I teach in interdisciplinary humanities with uh, an emphasis in post-colonial and comparative literature and environmental humanities and uh, have done um, research and writing also on uh, Mormonism and the environment. So, and I'm on the city council in Provo. You wear a lot of hats. (laughs) I I do wear a few. And I think another hat you can wear is really inspiring both of us in the (laughs) realm of environmental humanities. So, whether or not that holds value to you, it holds a lot of value to us. Yeah. Well, thank you. I, it does. It does. Of course, that's, that's my favorite subject. Well, good. <laughs> by, it's by it's, far. it's yeah. at least my yeah. favorite subject. <laughs> uh, well, good. Well, thanks. For, well, uh, we're excited to get onto the episode off the bat. Um, it, let's talk about early Mormonism um, with Joseph Smith and Brigham Young. Um, it, it doesn't, I don't, what I want to be careful about is, is going back in time and colonizing the the past with the ideas of the present. Um, and I don't want to make Joseph Smith out to be an environmentalist, um, in the, in the sense that we think of environmentalists in, in, uh, in these days. Um, but it doesn't seem like Joseph Smith had what we'd call like a developed environmental ethic, but he certainly laid the foundations for a very earthy kind of Mormonism. So in what, what would you say, what what was Joseph Smith's relationship with the earth? Uh, Well, I think the first thing you can point to is the fact that he restored three accounts of the uh, creation in, in Mormon liturgy and in Mormon scripture. So we have the Pearl of Great Price, which has both the Book of Moses and the Book of Abraham, which both give an account of the creation that is grounded in, but amplifies a lot of what we read in Genesis. Um, And then he 
uh, gave us uh, what became known as the endowment ceremony that's part of uh, temple worship today, in which the creation story is elaborately um, performed and retold in in uh, in uh, uh, you know ritualistic fashion. And so, um, you know, all you have to do is you know take a close look at those accounts and first of all acknowledge that three of them mean something pretty significant, right? That he, he, um, saw that story, uh, as, as centrally important, or we can say as members of the followers of the tradition that, that, that tells us that the story of creation is very important and that, uh, we would want to therefore pay particular attention to the aspects of those versions that are new, right. That amplify or, um, rewrite in some ways, uh, traditional understanding about the story in Genesis and where you, what you find in there. I mean, there's, there's a lot we could say about it. You might have more questions, but I mean, you, the, one of the most important thing that things that jumps out is that, um, it's very explicitly, laid out that the world is created spiritually before it's created physically. And, um, that, that means that all of physical matter has spiritual identity and that the spirit and the, the and physical matter are all part of matter itself. Like Joseph Smith was very clear that he thought spirit was matter and that it was, it was just a sort of finer kind of matter than the, than the, matter that we see with our eyes and touch with our hands. And that certainly has a lot of resonance, uh, with, you know, early 19th century romanticism and the transcendentalists and, uh, uh, of the time period. So there's not, it, it, you know, if we, if we were to look at the emergence of, um, an American environmental ethic, we typically go back to that same time period. Um, um, because that concept of spirit in nature is um, becomes fundamentally important to um, transitioning away from a kind of mechanistic uh, view of the physical world as you know dead matter that you can treat however you want or do whatever you want with it, and that it doesn't have sentience or subjectivity. But when you when you have a scripture like we do in the book of Moses that says plants and animals are living souls. And that's the same term that is used to, to describe human beings. Then there, there's an argument there for a certain kind of continuum between human and non-human life. And that despite the fact that we're created in God's image and therefore are distinct and important, uh, unusually important, uh, in the creation, we're not uh, uniquely important in the sense that we're the only things that matter and that the, you know, the holiness that's within us, the divinity that's within us has some uh, continuity into the world that we inhabit. Um, so there's, and there, you know, there are other ideas that uh, emerge in, in Mormonism uh, following that that become pretty important too, like the idea that the earth is the site of the celestial kingdom that we uh, worship an embodied God. Um, and so these kinds of things send a very different kind of message about the centrality of physical life and it's, and it's vital importance to our continued spiritual existence after this life. 
Um, so those are, those are, you know, definitely foundational points and maybe an additional point that's not so much in the, in those accounts of the creation, but in his contemporaneous uh, revelations that he's getting that become the doctrine and covenants, he's laying the foundation for um, social and political order for the kingdom of God on the earth and the central principle, the economic principle of that understanding is what's known as the law of consecration and the idea that we're not owners of anything, we're stewards and uh, our job is to um, you know, distribute the resources of the earth equitably uh, in order to maximize the flourishing of the entire human family. Um, and it starts, of course, in, you know, localized experiments with Mormon settlements and communities who try what's called the United Order, um, but it becomes a vision for the entire world, right? That this is um, sort of a quest you know, uh, there's phrasing in his revelations, for example, that as long as there, you know, the, there is inequality between the rich and poor, the world lies in sin. You know, that we're all kind of sort of collectively responsible for inequality and that inequality um, can and should be addressed through um, a radical commitment to very modest consumption and then very generous uh, re- redistribution of our, our, uh, material resources to, uh, assist others. So Joseph Smith was, could be considered a proto environmentalist that he was, he was, he was contemporary with a lot of the transcendentalists and a lot of those good thinkers back then. And it's very evident from the ideas inherent in our, in the scripture that he revealed um, that that our relationship with the earth is something is something special and it's something really spiritual something that was really central to his uh, to his his movement um, so something that's that I think about often is you know I president or elder Uchtdorf said at one of the last most recent conferences um, that the idea of the restoration is ongoing um, and then part of that uh, that it wasn't just a one-time event but then that that talk kind of kicked into my brain this idea that the restoration is also not simply about just uh, this little movement that happened in upstate New York, that it's a restoration of all things. So it's not simply limited to this one, this one spiritual tradition, but it's the restoration of the earth was, you know, the ideas necessary for the restoration of the earth were, were part of that, of that restoration movement. You have any thoughts on that? Uh, well, there's kind of two ways I can, we can think about that. One is that the, um, you know, and I mean, this is this is the Latter-day Saint understanding of our own tradition. So this may right. not necessarily uh, <laughs> be something that others would agree with, but the argument uh, the, or the sort of claim of uh, the Latter-day Saint tradition is that there is a restoration of um proper understandings that were once given, but are, have been, you know, eroded or have changed over time and that we're sort of coming back to a proper understanding. So one way of thinking about that is that the very ideas that I was just spelling out, um, are, and this is, uh, beautifully argued by, uh, 
uh, a good friend of mine, Jason Brown, who talks about, you know, the, maybe the restoration among all the things that it restored that, um, you know, we spent a lot of time talking about and, and understandably being appreciative of, uh, um, was a, a proper understanding of our relationship to the natural world, that this idea of this spirit in nature and, um, uh, the importance of embodiment, uh, are ideas that actually you can find in early Christianity, um, and, um, you know, they, they're sort of brought back in the restoration. So there's that one way of understanding it. The other way is, yeah, sort of understanding that restoration is work that um, includes all of the sciences. It includes all knowledge. Um, it's a gathering, um, you know, and I, I mean, it's kind of a romantic idea that I happen to like a lot that, you know, when I learn something, I'm learning something that maybe I for, I once knew or that we as a human family once had access to. Um, and when we learn, uh, we use the word recognize, which means recognition, you know, it's sort of almost like a kind of remembering. Um, I, I really love that idea that, that things that ring true to me uh, ring true in part because they, they remind me of something I always knew. Um, and I think, I think when we, you know, understand when we learn about proper, proper operations of the natural world, for example, when we're studying ecology and other kinds of things, I think we, we instinctively recognize those things as true. Um, and, but we also are called as Latter-day Saints to think of those things as part of the whole truth of God, you know, so we, we don't, we don't make separations, um, in, in different disciplines or we, and we, we believe that somehow ultimately all these things are going to come together. I don't know. I don't know if you were asking about ecological restoration, but that's, well, I think it's all, it was all, I just kind of like this, this idea of a holistic restoration, right? The restoration that, you know, that central to the restoration was this idea of our relationships with God and our relationships with each other that, you know, in the ceilings and in the endowment, that those are the two things. But I also really think the idea of um, our relationship to the earth was also part of that package. You know, it's a much more holistic, much more robust understanding of, of restoration. And I really liked what you talked about with remembering too, and this idea of like, uh, of, of, recognition and re uh, like recollection recollecting um kind of coincides with that idea of gathering um and uh, as this kind of restoration as being um a recollection of of those things that we previously knew you know either in in the uh you know pre-existence or or something that we um are now learning um to kind of continue forward but also you know collecting the past, collecting the present as this idea of restoration, um, as far as the environment is concerned. I think that's really, really interesting. Yeah. And I, and and I think it connects to the idea of, of, you know, post-mortal existence too, right? I mean, what I, what I find really beautiful about Latter-day Saint theology is the idea that you know, we think of heaven as uh, sort of an escape from this particular veil of tears that we're caught in. But uh, um, in the in the Latter Day Saint version, it's kind of a return to home. You know, if if we live right, we earn the right to stay right here. 
and so presumably a lot of what we'll do in heaven is is remembering and recollecting and and restoring right um what was our earthly experience and that our attachments to the earth and to our embodied experience here are not these temporary illusions they are the sub- substance of our most profound yearnings um so in that sense it's a you know going back to our earlier discussion of romanticism it's a deeply romantic notion right that that um the the senses and the embodied experience are the portals of of the most profound spiritual meaning uh, they're not they're not uh you know something to just suffer through and and get past yeah no i that i i, I really enjoy that i'm a i'm a fan of what thomas thomas mcconkey says i know i'm pretty sure you know thomas mcconkey right um, that he, uh, he'll talk about how, how, you know, we, we talk about it is something true, but rather is something powerful to me. And that idea of, of heaven being a place of, you know, that, you know, we're, we're, we're trying to create the best relationship with this earth as we can, because this is, this is where we're going. We're already here. Um, and, uh, you know, that whatever heaven is, has it has some kind of a relationship with to the life that I'm living right now that that is it's powerful to me it I I feel it I feel it in my chest it feels good I think this idea of romanticizing uh, Joseph Smith is really interesting because I think another way that we tend to do that um, is you know the story um, of the sacred grove and him, you know, physically going out into nature and participating in nature, um, and actually kind of taking that initial step towards restoration by asking that first question, you know, of, of which church do I join? What is right? Um, and praying to God, um, and that it's, you know, a very corporeal experience, but also a spiritual experience in nature that he has. Um, and so sometimes I, I kind of, Go, I, I go back and forth in understanding this as, you know, a romanticized experience. Was it really um, intentional that he's going out into nature or was it because, you know, he's just trying to do it in silence and, um, you know, have a moment alone or is it a combination of the two? I don't want to be reductive and kind of prescribe these perhaps more modern ideologies that I subscribe to, which is, you know, finding peace and spirituality through nature. But it's also hard to remove that from the story of Joseph Smith and the Sacred Grove. Um, but I, I would love to hear your thoughts, you know, and and this idea of kind of a romanticized and, and romantic experience, um, of the sacred grove. Oh yeah. That's a, that's such a great topic. Um, two thoughts come to me that I, um, we're sharing. One is that there's a, you, you guys might remember, uh, there's a famous essay by a medieval historian named Lynn White, who wrote an essay in 1967 called the, um, historical roots of our ecological crisis and his his biggest complaint in the article is that Christianity kind of took a bad turn when it rejected spirit and nature and it started to see the natural world as dead matter and he kind of he uses the phrase like you know Christianity needs to recover its sense of sacred groves and I remember when I read that for the very first time I was like wait whoa that's cool (laughs) you know and I and I I kind of have always associated that with Joseph Smith's experience. I mean, I think it's fair to say 
that, you know, you live in a small house that's in upper, uh, upper state New York in the early 19th century. Um, it's not that hard to get outside, right? I mean, you're like outside all the time. And so, um, it's not like he was seeking his rock Canyon experience that I try to get when I (laughs) need to get away from people and, and places, but but on the other hand, uh, of course, he did have visions in his in his house that no one else seemed to have noticed in the middle of the night. So it's perfectly possible that he could have had those experiences without going outside. The other thought I have is that um, there's a very beautiful uh, poem uh, by Catherine Sontag, uh, who's a Latter-day Saint poet, called uh, the, the Tree at the Center, and it's, um, uh, it's a book, a collection of poems, but she has at the end of the collection is a poem about the first vision, and she really stresses this idea of Joseph kind of lying in the hummus, you know, he's like in the, in the dead leaves and at the, at the roots uh, of the trees, and maybe to just share a brief a personal experience uh, about that poem um, and Thomas McConkie, of all things, Thomas was doing a, um, uh, uh, a meditation class with some BYU faculty, and uh, we were sort of talking about how to develop, you know, contemplative prayer practices. And he, he just, you know, and, and it was just a moment in the, in the lesson where he just had us close our eyes and sort of imagine, um, imagine ourselves in a position of acceptance and vulnerability. And for some reason, I kind of transported myself to the ground, uh, like Joseph Smith. And I suddenly realized, and I think it was because I've read Catherine Sontag's poem and love it so much, but I was, I was just kind of realizing that Joseph Smith was at maximum vulnerability when the, the vision happens to him. He's not only, I mean, he goes to the woods to pray, but you know, and, and maybe this is a little bit informed by some of our media images of the first vision, but he describes himself as being sort of knocked over by this dark spirit and feels almost strangled. And, you know, he's kind of staring straight up at the, at the leaves of the trees and he's in the earth, you know, he's just sort of covered in, in leaves and grass. And, and, and it's at that moment of just being kind of sprawled out and totally vulnerable that he's finally able to access God. And I think that principle is, um, still true in my mind, uh, today that, you know, the, that I, I am able to access God more, uh, frequently when I feel vulnerable and being in the natural world is one of those ways. And when I feel less of a individual isolated self. You know, I mean, I think the, the outdoors and wilderness and the silence of nature can be um, um, uh, uh, an opportunity to really open us. And there's something terrifying to it about it as well, right? I mean, oh, there, did you see that video uh, of the cougars always, stalking the man down yeah, Slate Canyon? I, I saw that. <laughs> I've been I, in that canyon. One of my favorite canyons to hike is Slate Canyon, and I haven't been up since I saw that video. <laughs> I but I, I honestly, like when I first moved here, and now that I've seen that video, it'll come back. It, it had gone away, but I'd always had this like, I'd always have to overcome the cougar fear. Like if whenever I would hike alone, you know, and I'd, I'd sort of uh, feel the hair on the back of my neck uh, rise just a little bit for about 10 or 15 minutes. I'd start imagining, okay, if you get attacked, you know, it's a good way to go. You know, And like I <laughs> sort of convinced myself I was going to die. 
And then I just uh, got so used to that that I just loved being alone because uh, I think initially it was a little bit frightening for me. Um, so I do think there's something to that, right? That there's uh, something about getting away from the automated world, the built world and being um, in the elements and feeling a little more vulnerable, a little more naked, a little more mortal. Um, that's, that's really when God can speak to us more powerfully. Sorry, that was a little bit of a... Uh, 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 long-winded answer to that or response to that comment. But yeah, I, I think it's a, a beautiful idea that there's holiness. And I love that we re- revere that place. You know, um, I just hope we realize that those groves are everywhere. I certainly feel like for me, Rock Canyon is one of those places. Absolutely. I grew up hiking in Rock Canyon too. <laughs> That's right. That's right. This is your backyard. So I think we would be um, we would be remiss if we, as we're tracking the the history of of environmental thought and Mormonism, if we didn't talk about Brigham Young. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's interesting because Brigham Young has, I feel like growing up and um, like most often at least in my experience in the church, I feel like he's most frequently tied to uh, ideas and of environmentalism or at least kind of uh, like preservation in a way. But then, you know, mm-hmm. as of late, he also seems tied to a lot of other more problematic things. Um, and so it's, it's hard to say, you know, like you, you really kind of have to pull apart him as, as a character almost in our history um, and, and really apply that knowledge of, of, you know, people are complex beings of both, you know, good and bad. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like that's yeah. kind of the caveat that you need to apply, but I, I, he seems important at least in establishing us within kind of a, an environmental realm early on in the church. Yeah, absolutely. And especially because he's the, he's the builder. He's the, he's the kingdom builder in a literal sense, right? He didn't build a theological kingdom so much as uh, an actual settlement and the civilization. Um, and so he was even more so than Joseph Smith, although Joseph Smith did a lot of this too, right? He envisioned cities and, um, and was a city urban planner himself, but Brigham Young really is not only the planner, but the implementer of a lot of these ideas. Uh, once, once the, the Latter-day Saints arrive, uh, here along the Wasatch front, um, and, you know, I mean, I would say, I would put it this way. I mean, Madison said at the very beginning, you know, we, we, we have to be careful not to colonize. And uh, so I, I don't, I don't really, first of all, I'm not even, maybe this is unfair to say, I'm not even sure I know what environmentalism is because it's so many different things. Right. Um, yeah. Although what I would say is we are in an environmental crisis and we're searching for answers and religion offers some really good ones. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean we're converting our religion into a political ideology, although people do that all the time. Um, and to some degree or another, there's, there's, a, there's a certain bit of inevitability in the fact that we do that. But I think we have to be careful um, and just look at what's practically useful to us now rather than necessarily judging uh, then. And I, I would say one thing uh, that maybe seems consistently true in our theology that there is a bit of a tension between um, 
the inherent spiritual value of things that we've talked about. And then this uh, really profound ethic of, you know, building communities and feeding people and, and making a living, right? And, and a really intense drive in our um, culture that is, you know, other people, when they come and study Mormon culture, they notice it right away. It's like these, these people work really hard and they're ambitious and we were um, let loose on the Intermountain West as our sort of <laughs> experimental landscape to convert it into a, a civilization. And so we got filled with a certain kind of passion for that and got really good at it. And I don't want to say all of that's bad, but it certainly stems from Brigham Young. I mean, so you see Brigham Young saying things to the early members of the church, like, you know, he's chastising them for not getting along uh, about water use or for overgrazing. And he doesn't want them to be in pursuit of uh, treasures of the earth. And he, you know, he's cautioning them against wealth and, and he's preaching communitarianism. The, the, uh, uh, you know, the, the law of consecration or the United order in practice. And, and yet, um, he's also, you know, he's saying things that, again, lots of other people were saying and still say to this day, well, the, the, the natural world looks like it needs help. It needs redemption. <laughs> it, looks, it looks a lot, it looks very brown. It, it needs more trees. It needs more transformation. And so our, our ethos of wanting to transform the desert comes from him at the same time that our ethos of wanting to protect things can arguably be said to come from him as well. So I, I think there's a little bit of a tension there. And obviously that for, for good reason, that tension's there, especially in his time, because, you know, it's, it's hard, it's hard to imagine that things can't be, that there's, there are the limits that we've bumped up against um, with the natural world when there's so much space and um, you know, there's so much opportunity and uh but I do think, I don't know, maybe I'm, I'm a, a not giving the most coherent response to that, but I mean, I do think that the settlements of the Intermountain West um, had to confront the aridity of the area pretty early on, um, and they figured out the solution was irrigation. And that, of course, leads to the damming of a lot of rivers and, you know, really fast propulsion and and growth of cities in the, in the West that we're a part of, uh, that include uh, all the other States in the American West. And that's, that's a pretty mixed legacy at best. So. Yeah, no, I, I know I feel that tension, um, inherent within kind of Mormon ideas, uh, two of this, uh, it's almost this tension between a biocentric worldview and an anthropocentric worldview. Uh, you know, the utilitarian that, you know, it, the the value of utilitarianism versus this more romantic uh, notion of of the of, of nature. Yeah, and we're still fighting that battle in our own minds and hearts right now, right? And and, and there's there's not necessarily it's not always clear to me that one is the right side and the other is the wrong side. I mean, for example, you know, it's very clear that climate change is affecting polar bears, but it's also affecting the world's poor. And, and I don't think there's anything wrong with an anthropocentric 
uh, response to the crisis of climate change that says, like Pope Francis articulates it, you know, we care about this because it's the cry of the poor and we have a Christian duty to respond. I mean, I don't really care whether you are motivated, you know, primarily for the plight of the poor or for the polar bear, as long as, as long as we're all on board and trying to figure out solutions, I think that's the key thing. Um, anyway, and sometimes environmental attitudes can get kind of anti-human if they get so biocentric that they don't really, and there's a, there's a longstanding criticism and it's a justified one that a lot of American environmentalism has paid very little attention to the plight of the poor and the plight of people of color and the ways in which environmental problems aren't necessarily, or, or social justice is not, is maybe made worse by some environmental movement um, because they're, they're too preoccupied with kind of maybe white privilege or middle class, upper middle class privilege. And they don't really think through, you know, what we're preserving the natural world for and why and for whom. I think that's interesting, especially in the context of, you know, uh, Mormon environmentalism or at least the church's environmentalism, because it is present. I mean, if we're tying it back to Joseph Smith um, and Doctrine and Covenants 104, it talks about, you know, the Lord making every man accountable as, as stewards over earthly blessings. Um, and it specifically talks about, you know, the poor being exalted and the rich are made low. Um, and, and this idea of, you know, equalizing and, and remembering the poor as we care for these these earthly blessings um, and creatures that the Lord has given us. So, I mean, it, we can't forget that, that it's, you know, very inherent and, and directly part of our, our church doctrine that we have. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think in the end, that's why I feel like it's unfortunate that sometimes environmentalism, um, contemporary environmentalism looks like it's forcing a choice between the spotted owl and the logger. And when it really, um, uh, you know, when it comes down to it, environmental problems are fundamentally problems of unequal distribution and of resources and that there's, um, uh, you know, disproportionate impacts that are suffered by people in poverty uh, than those who have economic resilience to be able to shield themselves from the impacts of environmental problems. Um, and anyway, that maybe leads to our more contemporary yeah. uh, conversation about the environment. But I think I think there's a real opportunity for us to um, seize our. I, I think that, I guess I would say, I think that tension between, you know, anthropocentrism and biocentrism or between, you know, a kind of human focus and a kind of biological focus um, is a good and healthy tension to live with. I think it helps um, mitigate against the extremes of both positions. Yeah, no, it's actually a really good segue into uh, what I kind of more like mid-century Mormonism um, that that at least my 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 uh, kind of impression is that mid-century Mormonism was a little bit resistant to environmental ideals. Um, 
would you, would you say that's a fair, that's a fair take or, uh, you know, especially if we consider the kind of the birth of environmental movement to be the sixties and kind of the, kind of the hippie movement, um, that mid-century Mormonism, I, at least my, 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 my gut reaction is to, is to say that it would be fairly resistant to those ideas. Yeah. There are a couple of things that, that, that could be said about that. And I hope I can say this, uh, you know, coherently enough, but I, for one, I think there, the American setting of the post-World War II era is a moment of great intoxication with the idea of limited, unlimited progress and opportunity. And the idea that the American dream starts to take on, um, post-World War II is, is what, you know, kind of the middle-class dream of the house in the white picket fence and the more and more convenient appliances and the liberation from labor and then the explosion of recreation. And there's this, this sort of feeling, and this is mainly felt by, you know, middle-class, upper middle-class Americans, um, um, predominantly white Americans. Um, but that's the ethos of the American dream as it's understood. And I think that's the, that's what's experienced by a lot of Latter-day Saints um, as well. And then along comes a countercultural movement yet that, yeah, it expresses this great passion for the earth, but it's framed in a way that's so radically countercultural that it probably is, uh, it is, uh, largely unappealing to a lot of Latter-day Saints. Um, and ultimately I think it becomes even more than just unappealing. I think it starts to be seen as threatening and I can put my own self in this historical picture for a moment because I was in college at Stanford university in the 1980s and Paul Ehrlich was, um, uh, the guy who wrote the population bomb. And that book was uh, quite a, um, a sent quite a shockwave, and it was a very aggressive argument about the fact that environmental problems were um, directly and almost always and almost exclusively tied to population, and that the only way out was you know population control, and um, that of course ran counter to a lot of prevailing attitudes in uh, the church at the time, and it still does, to the degree that people are, you know, fight environmentalism within the church today, they, they often will cite that as one of their reasons, and they might point to statements in UN documents or other kinds of uh, principled uh, articulations of what sustainability means, and they'll see it as a sort of, you know, um, kind of dystopian government plan to to limit reproductive freedoms, and I don't want to be naive about the fact that there are there are you know ongoing conversations about those kinds of problems and those kinds of arguments do uh, do circulate in environmentalism and in in world culture, but they don't define the whole. That's why I say the sort of this ism is kind of difficult to define because you know you've got now a whole host of arguments uh, for and against those uh, and around those issues that are much more complex. And you have people like Pope Francis, who's, you know, pretty darn conservative about birth control and, and, and 
protective of reproductive freedom, but arguing that climate change is a really serious problem. And um, he targets consumption rather than population numbers. And um, and I think there's so I think there's been um, you know going back to what I was saying, I think that intoxication with limitless growth, and then sort of this countercultural movement, and then this movement that seems associated with population control. Those those are, and then maybe these, maybe there's a fourth factor here, and that is sort of from the 1980s forward, um, around the time again that I was in college, and Ronald Reagan is in the White House. There is a there is a division, partisan division over the environment that starts to happen. Because if you go back just 10 years earlier, uh, Richard Nixon is one of the most environmental presidents of the 20th century. And then by the 1980s, it starts to be a, a, a split between the two parties and the Democrats kind of own environmentalism and Republicans uh uh, essentially turn away from, um, you know, the more conservation minded kind of environmentalism. And they start talking about wise use and they're trying to make a more anthropocentric, uh, argument for, uh, environmental protections only insofar as they help human beings. Uh, and anyway, and then eventually it's like, you know, by the time the nineties and the two thousands hit, you know, it's, it's, uh, become, I mean, because there was even a time during the 90s and the 2000s when both parties were talking about climate change. Uh, and that that has sadly um, split away as well. So there, there's now just so much polarization around it. And because of the particular party affiliation of, uh, uh, you know, majority of Latter-day Saints in the United States, um, the partisan problems in our country have done the sorting for us, basically. I mean, right. you can you can now predict what someone's attitudes are about the climate more by which party they belong to than by any other factor in their in their life. Uh, that's true of us Latter-day Saints as well as anybody else in, in the United States. So that's our sad state of affairs at this point. Do you feel like... Um Maybe because I think a lot of what you just said just lends itself to the idea of um, trying to emphasize, you know, the depoliticization of this issue, but also kind of the regrounding it as a as a human and a world issue as opposed to um, one that's staunchly political. Um, but do you feel like I mean, I feel like I've had experiences in, in different classes where. Um, you know, I bring this up about about the church being a little bit more vocal um, as far as kind of uh, emphasizing the importance of being environmentally minded or or kind of reminding us about the importance of stewardship and conservatism. But um, and, and I mean, conservationism, sorry, not conservatism. <laughs> Whoa. Um, but, you know, a, a reemphasization of these more. Um, uh, earth-minded um, ideas, do you think that would cause harm? I mean, I feel like Sharon Eubank, I, I attended um, a talk that she gave, I think it was last year, early last year. At LDS or Stewardship's yeah. Fall Forum. Where she talked about, you know, someone asked her this, you know, why don't, why don't the prophet, 
um, and his apostles speak about this over the pulpit and bring it up in general conference if it's such a large issue and has been for the last several decades. You know, why is this not um, receive more emphasis over the pulpit? Um, and she said, you know, it's become so intertwined with political values and, and notions that they don't want to make it seem as if they are taking one side over the other. Um, and I, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm interested to hear what you have to say, but also, um, do you think that bringing this up would have that kind of political, um, ripple effect throughout the church, or if it would be something that would be constructive as far as recentering it as, as being more of a world issue as opposed to simply one of political value? Uh, it's a really good question and we probably wouldn't know until it happens. Right. And I, I think it would the ultimate test would be if it were the, the president Nelson himself, rather than even just one of his apostles. Um, and certainly it would need to be in general conference and it would probably need to be repeated by somebody else, you know, two or three times before it then sort of had that kind of stature. Cause I mean, look, if you're convinced this is, this is the toxicity of partisan thinking in our country right now. It's just so bad that if you're convinced that if you care about the environment, that's because you bought into a secular lie, a secular liberal lie, and that you, uh, you are being infiltrated by this, this poisonous, dangerous way of thinking that is contrary to everything you hold dear. Um, you're going to be willing to see uh, any talk of an, uh, stewardship in the church with pretty cynical eyes unless it's all the way at the top, unless it's repeated over and over again at the top. Because I've seen it, I've seen people say, even like, you know, when the Mormon newsroom issued their website for the very first time back in whenever it was, 2014 or 15. You know, people are like, oh, you know, the church is just doing that because they need to. They got to show that they're politically savvy. They don't really mean it. Or if BYU starts hiring a sustainability manager like they're doing right now, people will say, well, that's because BYU is getting invaded by socialists <laughs> and they're losing they're losing their their bearings. Right. So, I mean, I, I'm, I don't make fun of this. I just think I'm just saying this is how bad it is that if you think that a topic like the environment or a topic like race is just by definition political and partisan, then you, you can't engage it, right? Um, you, you can't find any reason in your, your most deeply held beliefs, any motivation, sincere motivation to care. But I will say this, um, I believe in the power of values and principles and I believe in the power of religion and I do think that based on my experience with students at BYU uh, and in some uh, you know just in informal settings with fellow Latter-day Saints and in my experience in Provo City government that people really genuinely want to find solutions to the problems that we're facing they want clean air they want open space. They want, uh, they want, they don't want to see everything get developed everywhere. They, they want their children and grandchildren to enjoy the same quality of life that they have. And if you can just get people to focus on the practical problems in front of them, like those, 
and point to the traditions and the values and beliefs of our, our faith tradition that are relevant, then they do. I have seen, it's not like there's such a thing as pure political neutrality or any position that's, you know, totally above all politics, but there's at least a more values-based approach and there's a more pragmatic approach. I think the real, um, the real disease in our culture right now is this ideological packaged thinking that is provided for us by pundits and talk radio and, uh, news media and social media. And we, we think we, have done all the thinking we need to do by summarizing something in a sentence or in a meme or in a tweet. And that that's sort of what it means to be a thoughtful citizen. Um, so I, I love the way in which, I mean, I'm advantaged by virtue of the fact that I teach students for three months at a time. I meet with them several hours a week and I can force them to read things that they wouldn't otherwise read and get them to have, conversations they might not otherwise have. And I'm not, my goal is never to convert them to a certain political persuasion, but I am uh, unabashedly trying to get them to recognize both the reality of the problems we're facing, but also the opportunities that they have as members of the church and the tools and, uh, you know, skills that they have at their fingertips to be able to rise to these challenges because there's nothing stating to a religious tradition than to raise young people in it and not equip them with the ability to confront the problems of their day and just say, Oh, don't worry about those things. Those things don't exist. Those things aren't real. Right. Or those things aren't relevant. And then after a while they wake up and say, I've been deceived by my tradition. My tradition gave me nothing. It's bankrupt. It's useless. I've got to go someplace else because I got to learn how to live in this world right now. And this, this tradition is not helping me. I think our tradition has a wealth of riches, you know, and, and tools and, and opportunities. But, but I, I think it's such a disservice to uh, young members of the church to not point them to it. That's something that I, uh, I actually, so I, I've, I've done a lot of thinking about is that, that I, uh, I don't know. Are you familiar with, uh, I'll bring this up probably on every podcast. Are you familiar with R Richard Rohr? <laughs> yes, I am. Okay. Well, so yeah, very, I've read a couple of books by him. Oh, good. So have I, uh, <laughs> Abby needs to get on the train. He needs to get on the Richard yeah, Rohr train. Yes, you do. Um, but, uh, his center is the center for action and contemplation, right? And, uh, that, our spiritual practice needs to be rooted in spirituality, but it also needs to be rooted in, in earth and world centered action that we need to be agents of change in the world. You know, that Christ calls us to be the salt of the earth and salt is a change agent in any recipe, right? It enhances the flavor of something. It, it a recipe isn't the same if you don't add salt or the leaven in the, in the, in the, in the bread, the, the bread doesn't work without the leaven. Right. And so, you know, I, 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 definitely think that a crucial aspect of any of any li living faith is this world focused this world centered action component that you know our faith needs to yeah. needs to enable us to live in the world as it is and to live to make it better 
Yeah, I, I agree. I think um, um, another way to put that is that I think, and, and Abby will recognize this from the writings of Lowell Banyan, but I think, I think there's something fundamentally, uh, a fundamental inherent need inside of every human being to want to live a life of meaning and to live a life of high purpose and people who are the happiest tend to be those who find that purpose. They, they discover a reason to be where they are when they're there, you know? Um, and that's, that's something that, for example, you know, I learned on my mission as a young elder, you know, I mean, it was kind of, uh, ultimately, convincing to me to believe that I was on every street corner for a reason, you know, like nothing was, nothing was coincidence or that coincidence was always inherently meaningful and that I should just embrace every opportunity to be in the moment. And that's a, that's a really powerful way of uh, unleashing your agency on the world. Right. And it's a way of feeling incredibly connected to the present and connected to God, you know, it's, it's, it's exciting to feel like I could make a difference now right here with this set of circumstances I'm in. So when you think about like in terms of societal, uh, conditions, um, you know, whatever they might be, whether it's a pandemic or, um, uh, an election season or, um, racial conflict or all at the, at the same time, <laughs> like we're living right now. Uh, you know, you, 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 there's a, there's an instinct in us sometimes to feel like the outside world and the conditions of it are, they're irritating. Uh, they shouldn't be here. Uh, they're distracting. They cause us stress. They're frustrating. Um, and all of that is, you know, and I think all of us felt that at the beginning of the pandemic and m a lot of us are still going through it to varying degrees. But I mean, there's a point at which you just sort of have to say, okay, it's here. It's not going away. There's nothing, there is nothing productive in sitting around and resenting it. You know, I've got to find a way to live meaningful in these, in this situation here now. And, um, that's, that's a way of sort of, I think being called. That's a, that's a way of sort of feeling like, um, you are rising to something and, and that can transform a feeling of anxiety and depression into a feeling of hope and opportunity. Um, and, it, and, and it just can feel so meaningful to you. And I, all I can say is that like, ever since I made up my mind, it just really, you know, I care about a lot of things. It's not like the environment's the only thing I pay any attention to or care about, but the, from the time that I decided that this was something important to me, I feel like my life was, has been richer ever since. I just feel like it's been so much more, more exciting and fulfilling and meaningful because I feel like I'm trying to live for something. That's actually a really good uh, transition. Um, the, if there was a book on the history of, of environmental Mormon thought, there would be an entire chapter on you and there'd be an entire chapter on Hugh Nibley. Um, so what, <laughs> what, how did, how did you as like a young, as a young, you're new to humanities at BYU, what is it about environmental scholarship that so appealed to you? 
Well, you've, you've probably both heard me tell the story, but, but I was uh, in Flagstaff, Arizona for three years at Northern Arizona before coming to BYU. And I had a colleague, a Jewish woman who was, uh, she had studied eco-theology with uh, process theologian John Cobb. And she was very, very familiar with Christian eco-theology and she was um, curious. We were on a walk one day and she wanted to know what Mormons believed about the earth. And I just kind of rattled off some of the things we were talking about at the beginning. And, And she just was floored. And she said, do Mormons know this? Uh, and I said, I said, yeah. And I said, why do you ask? And she goes, well, don't, I hope you don't take offense, but you know, all the Mormons I've known, I've never known a Mormon who seemed to be particularly concerned about environmental stewardship. Uh, why is that? And I, and I didn't really have a good answer to that. Um, and I kind of stumbled around guessing and she just said, well, you have, she just kind of pointed at me and says, you have to write about she said, I think not only should Mormons hear this, but other people would want to hear this too. And so when I took a job at BYU uh, shortly after that, uh, I remember specifically in my um, you know, job interview or wherever it was, uh, talking with one of my future colleagues. And I said, hey, you know, if I come here, I want to teach American and Latin American humanities and uh, you know what I was trained in. But I've become really interested in environmental uh, thought and, and environmental literature and environmental theology. Would you welcome uh, the chance for me to do something like that? And could I write about even Mormonism in the environment? And they were like, oh, yeah, that sounds really great. You know, they were like, well, they were giving good practical advice. They were like, well, don't make that your central thing. <laughs> you got to get tenure and. You know, so I, I did my other stuff. I wrote I wrote books and published articles about literature in a post-colonial context, which is what I was trained in. But um, I just continued from that time forward. I published my first essay in 2000. Um, and, I, and I remember I had a student like one of you uh, who was trying to, wanted to write an honors thesis. And he was a double major in humanities and horticulture. And I was like, wow, that's a really cool combination. I said, do you want to be my research assistant? And he's like, yeah. And he's like, well, I want to write a thesis that combines these somehow. And he, he racked his brain and he came to me one day and he says, I want to write about the Salt Lake uh, Temple uh, Gardens and like what they mean theologically. And I'm like, oh, that's brilliant. You know, wow. so I was like, I'll help you write your thesis and you help me write my article. And so we just went to town and read together everything we could and, um, you know, so intellectually that just kind of took off as something that I couldn't stop doing from that point forward. But to make a very long story short, it became very clear to me just even once into that effort. Uh, first of all, there was like this huge hunger in Utah for a Mormon environmentalist. So it was like, as soon as somebody found out that I, I was like uh, <laughs> a Latter-day Saint who cared about the environment, I was started getting asked to like, speak at things and write letters to the editor. And I, and I just kind of started doing it. And I was, so I was really enjoying that kind of public role at the same time as I continued, you know, we ended up doing symposia and publishing an edited book and, and uh, just kept publishing more. And, and we started doing lecture series and, and I, you know, kept finding like-minded people at BYU and elsewhere um, throughout the state, up at Utah state and, 
uh, University of Utah and, and other places. And, and so I've just kind of been up and down the Wasatch Front, um, lecturing at other universities, lecturing in public, and, um, and uh, just, just found it just a wonderful and and of course you know i was also just like super in love with this landscape i couldn't get over how gorgeous everything was and i couldn't believe what a unique place this was to live to have this kind of access to the mountains and rivers and the wilderness is just ridiculous i mean if you if utah were its own nation you know like somewhere else uh, kind of separated and i mean people people i know people come from all the world to see utah but i still think we're vastly underappreciated i think we're one of the most stunningly beautiful places on the planet and it's all at our you know it's all just a few hours drive from our house it's it's pretty amazing so it's just been really fun so it's interesting that you say that you know you just keep finding more people who who care about this stuff who you know along the wasatch front when you're doing the you know the the utah collegiate circuit giving presentations um so it feels like to me that there's kind of a we're in a moment and you know the last couple decades that there's been a like an explosion of environmental thought in Mormonism you know a relative explosion <laughs> um but that it's certainly seen some unprecedented growth so i guess my question would be what do you think has precipitated this this growth of Mormon eco scholarship, you know, was it you that you just were the one talking finally everyone else, you know, piqued their curiosity when they already had the curiosity and you just had the, you know, the courage to talk out loud, which emboldened everyone else to to talk out loud. Or do you think that there's just some kind of groundswell movement inside of Mormonism right now that is kind of coming up from the the bottom up about kind of environmental issues and, and in the, in our faith? Uh, I, I don't think I, I mean, I, I don't think I'm the reason all that happened. No. Um, but I do think that, um, I felt like, like, I felt like I, um, well, for one, I mean, they're, you know, I move here and I, I start meeting people who've been working on environmental protection for decades and, you know, they're much older than I am. And I mean, one of them was Gail Dick who founded Save Our Canyons up in Salt Lake. And he wasn't, he wasn't a Latter-day Saint, but he was, happened to have been my brother's physics professor, uh, in college years ago. And he was a dear family friend and he kind of got me connected to a lot of people up in Salt Lake. And, and I just came to really admire a lot of this. There was always an environmentalism in Utah, but I think there was, um, like I say, a real hunger for a religious dimension to it. Um, uh, and I just think over time, I, I don't know, it's really kind of hard to say. I think over time there was definitely a groundswell. I just noticed that things got easier and easier to get traction. Um, and I can't really explain that except that I definitely can now point to just dozens and dozens of people who are, who are passionate and doing great work and and I feel like there's this big broad community and it's really exciting to be a part of but it was it was definitely um, a little bit isolating at first but I think there I you know I've made this point over and over again and I've written about it there was I think there always was a bit of a mythology that Mormons you know weren't involved in the environment the fact is there were lots of them but you know the, the my favorite anecdote is that there was a an article in the paper 
in, uh, I don't remember which paper I, it was, I think it might've been high country news. It might've been an environmental report, but, uh, it was about a protest in page Arizona against, um, the, uh, a, a rally in favor of Lake Powell and a counter rally in favor of draining Lake Powell. And they made a big deal out of the, out of the fact that the protest or the rally in favor of Lake Powell was led by a Mormon bishop, you know, and I remember thinking, okay, the guy was a, yeah, it's a lay church. He's a bishop in the community. I, I doubt it was that he like literally, you know, rallied the troops on Sunday and said, okay, we're all going marching on Monday. Um, although maybe that's possible, but that's not usually the way it works, but he's obviously an influential person in his community. He gets tagged by the reporter as a Mormon bishop and no one bothered to mention that the counter protest, uh, which was the Glen Canyon trust was founded by a Mormon and was there rich Ingebretson. And he was the one fighting that battle. And it was like, okay. And, and he's one of the most devout Mormons I'd ever met. And he was like obsessed with the fact that he was, he was very, uh, not upset with the right word. He was, he was, um, very explicit to people that I am an environmentalist, not despite the fact that I'm a Mormon, but because I'm a Mormon, but the, the media never picked that up, you know? And so like you have, you have really outspoken anti-environmental Mormon political leaders, uh, like Rob Bishop or Jason Chaffetz. And everyone assumes that that's, the predominant Mormon ethos. And yeah, there's a, it certainly is a very strong ethos in our culture, but I think there was always a, a, a trend in the other direction. And I think that trend has just grown over time. And I think people like John Curtis has figured that out that like, if you're going to be a Republican in Utah in 2020, you, you don't, you don't have to be anti-environmental to get votes. You know, that's, that's no longer the case. Uh, so I think our, I think there's a groundswell. I think, uh, the culture has changed. I think people have grown, grown tired of the, um, uh, sort of just kind of crazy polarization around a lot of these issues. And, and I think things have just, you know, it's helped too that the price of solar and the price of other renewable energies has gone down and suddenly people aren't as upset about climate change as they once were. Um, Anyway, I don't know. That's a, that's a complicated question, but I think that, um, I think there's definitely been a groundswell and there's definitely been a change over the years at BYU. I mean, I just don't feel like there's as many students who arrive with deep held, deeply held suspicions on day one. You know, they're more, they're just generally more open and they're, um, more curious and they don't seem like they've got a preformed um, bias. Um, but there were a lot of students like that when I first started teaching. I think that's a very hopeful perspective and a good one for me to hear because I think sometimes, I mean, just in my involvement, I I feel sometimes a little bogged down by those who uh, seem to be in direct opposition of these ideas. Um, and really, that's not the norm. I mean, I should they hurt a little bit more because <laughs> they're, they're fewer and fewer. Um, you know, far between uh, in in my encounters with them, and and in actuality, the norm is is more of this meeting of um, of of common ground where we both find some reason to respect the environment or or reasons to protect, like we talked about at the beginning. Whether that's through you know it, respecting the poor and and trying to um, 
mitigate those those issues um, or if it's really a, a staunch environmentalist perspective. But yeah, I, I really like that idea um, that you touched on just, you know, arriving with an open mind. And I hope that that kind of becomes uh, the progress that we experience within the church um, instead of, you know, jumping to conclusions early on. I think that's hopefully um, what where the future lies in environmentalism um, within the church. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think that's a very hopeful perspective, and I, I am very grateful for that today. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I mean, I don't want to overstate it. Um, I, I do think that the last three and a half years under Donald Trump, um, a lot of, a lot of chaos is in the system right now. And it's, it's in some ways it's almost impossible to know really what's going on. Um, but there's no question that he's been just utterly devastating to all kinds of environmental issues. And my sense has been that there's, uh, been a hardening of support for him in the last few months, just as we've gotten closer and closer to the election. I don't, you know, back in 2016, you know, we didn't see this many Trump signs and Trump rallies and so on. Um, so he's definitely been a great hero to a lot of people in Utah. I don't think there's any question about that. And they've, he's tapped into that kind of strong anti-federalism, that strong, um, uh, kind of freedom, uh, protection and, and deregulation, uh, uh, that, that, that a lot of, uh, right-wing conservatives really, really like. And I think that's hardened. And I, but I, my, my sense is, and I, and I don't know for, you know, I haven't read studies on this, but my sense is that that's more, uh, slightly older conservatives than it is true of conservatives under the age of 35 or 40 even. I mean, I think there's, you know, conservatives that I know in Provo, and I mean, card carrying Republicans who are under the age of 40, um, they tend to be quite liberal on social issues and they tend to be quite concerned about the environment and quite fatigued by the kind of older guard conservatives who have that kind of added. I think that's true on racial issues, on LGBT issues, and on environmental issues. And there's definitely a shift. And a lot of students, especially the you know college-age demographic, this is true nationally, you know, just a lot of them. You heard Elder Ballard speak just a year ago, or not a year ago, uh, back in March, right before COVID broke out. Felt like a year ago. <laughs> yeah, it, felt, it feels like yeah, 10 years ago. Years. <laughs> he, I, don't, you know, I don't know if you heard that talk, but he, he actually had gone to the effort to really understand young college kids and what they care about. And he says, I've read enough about you that I know that you care about a few things that are important to you. And he made a list of them. And he talked about race, talked about the environment, talked about inclusion and fairness. And he's like, I understand these things matter to you. And he wasn't there to say, you shouldn't care about those things. He was there to say, the gospel has answers to those problems. And here are some of those answers. And he said, in very explicit terms, that we should care about the environment. Uh, so that was a really powerful moment. Um, and he kind of validated their concern. 
Um, so younger, younger college age kids are completely disoriented by what Trump represents. And I don't think they're flocking to him, um, at all. And I think that's, um, you know, probably a trend that's uh, affecting, you know, Latter-day Saint young, younger kids too. And that's why, you know, if I were a conservative, I'm not, but if I were, I would say, Hey guys, we got to get on some of these bandwagons. We can't, we can't be just, you know, uh, we can't just be anti-anti-racist or, and we can't be anti-environmental and, uh, you know, anti-LGBT. We've got to, we've got to, we've got to address these problems head on and come up with conservative solutions to these problems maybe, but let's not just like dismiss them any longer as, as, you know, secular conspiracies. These are, these are real problems that need, need conservative solutions. I would love that. I mean, I, and I, and I enjoy having those kinds of conversations with thoughtful conservatives about the climate or about the environment, because I feel like we're getting somewhere. Um, you know, I feel like we're in the same world, you know, I'm not, I'm not living in some separate reality with them. It's, uh, it's exciting. Um, even though we still might have some strong differences of opinion about policy. What are your, your hopes for the future of Mormon environmentalism? Well, I, I don't want to be too critical of the term Mormon environmentalism, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't really be critical. Um, of it. <laughs> I would, well, yeah. I mean, I would just avoid, I just, I just don't like isms, you know, isms right. are just a bad thing generally speaking. So, I mean, and I would say, you know, I would call it, and maybe to be deferential to the president of the church, I would say the Latter-day Saint, uh, <laughs> Guilty. Uh, uh, a Latter-day Saint environmental ethos. Right. You know, how's that for, that's not catchy at it's all. It's not as it? catchy, but um, we'll run but with that's it. what I would do, describe it as, uh, you know, I, and, and ethos is a good word because it's sort of an ethical orientation. You know, it's like a, a, a state of care, you know, and, and, and a fundamental commitment to finding solutions to problems. Um, uh, so you're asking me, what do I hope for that? Yeah. What are your hopes? Is that what you're saying? Well, I hope, uh, you know, I hope that it's not, uh, that, that caring about the environment isn't a bad thing, <laughs> uh, that we can, uh, that we can move away from a kind of discomfort with the ideas that, that are, uh, fundamental to, um, environmental care. And I think, um, you know, I hope our vocabulary in church actually can become more comfortable uh, so that we depoliticize it. Um, what we were talking about earlier is not only could it be depoliticized by statements from church leaders, but I think it can be depoliticized in the way we bring it up among ourselves and in gospel discussions in Sunday school and whatnot. I, you know, we don't have to be like bringing politics into church, but I think if we just made it clear that, you know, when we're talking about Sabbath day worship, we're remembering the creation. When we're, when we teach about the word of wisdom, we ought to be thinking about what it says about animals and what it, what it implies about plants and fruits and vegetables in season. And when we're talking about the creation and the story of Adam and Eve, we don't miss like the whole relationship to the creation that it's trying to teach us. I feel like it just so often and I'm sure you've experienced this, um, just those aspects of the gospel just are absent 
So I'd love to see them in our teaching manuals. I'd love to see them in our primary lessons um, that creation care uh, is part of who we are. You know, uh, church leaders have said it is. Uh, I've heard them say it's in our DNA, but I think our DNA must be like um, eroding or something because I don't I don't hear that nearly enough. And I think it should be something that we're just I think it's unfortunately, again, what Abby was talking about, the politicization has meant that we feel like talking about those things becomes political by definition. And I think that is just another way of caving into the politicization. Like, I think that actually gives it ground that it shouldn't have. You should, we should just own our ethos and our, our sense of stewardship as in on our own terms, because that's what our tradition calls us to do. And Stop worrying about, you know, what what it's going to look like to Republicans or conservatives or Republicans or Democrats or or whatever. I mean, just because all we're talking about are values and principles and and a kind of orientation to the earth that we've we've lost. Or maybe we never had and we just need really badly right now (laughs) because. Cause we're, we're facing unprecedented situations and we can't, we, we need to make ourselves relevant to, to the world we live in. So that's my hope. I think, I, and I think we'll get there. I just think it's, uh, I always feel like it's a little too slow, obviously, but, but you know, you, you, uh, that's, that's what good contemplative, uh, practices for is to help you be patient with reality. Patience, <laughs> compassionate for forgiving, yeah. forgiving reality yeah. for being what it is. Well, thanks, thanks for thanks for coming by, Georgia Abby. You got any uh, any last thoughts? No, I mean that was the perfect way to end. Okay. I agree wholeheartedly. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> well, it felt like it, it. honestly felt like we were back in class yeah. a little bit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you guys are awesome, and I really, I really, uh, I, I, I'm excited to see, uh, you know, what you're what you're doing and what you're going to continue to do with your education and with your lives because I know, and I just, I just genuinely believe if you, if you are possessed of a passion and a vision, then God opens doors for you. So keep it up. Thank you for listening. And we hope you enjoyed this episode of Bristlecone Firesides. If you liked this conversation, please subscribe and share widely with your friends, family, and neighbors. Consider leaving us a rating through the podcasting app of your choice. For more from Madison, Abby, and the Bristlecone family, follow us on Twitter and Instagram and visit our website to enjoy more earthy content on faith, activism, and belonging to the earth. From the Aspen Mountains, Juniper Forests, Red Rock Deserts, and Salty Lakes of Utah, we wish you peace and goodness as you strive to find yourself in the family of the earth. 